Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 124, A Challenge to Jesus is God Apologists. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to walk you through an argument against confusing Jesus with his God. I'm going to explain the structure of this argument, my motivation for giving the argument, and why I think you should accept each premise in the argument, and thus its conclusions. I urge you either to accept the argument as sound, or to tell us why we should doubt or deny one or more of the premises. In contemporary American evangelicalism, in practice, the old Catholic Christology has been simplified down into this. Jesus is God. This is particularly true for many contemporary evangelical apologists for whom Jesus is God is the central Christian claim. This is ordinarily understood to mean that Jesus just is God himself, though many a sophisticated Trinitarian will disagree. One sees this belief in ordinary church life when a pastor freely interchanges the words Jesus, God, and Father while praying. One sees it in ordinary church life when people use Jesus as the proper name for the Christian God, in distinction to other alleged gods. At the same time, when evangelicals read the Bible, they intuit that in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus is someone and his God is someone else. This insight doesn't jibe with the slogan that Jesus is God, which is so emphasized in some apologetic contexts. Confusion reigns on this topic. Of course, one way to deal with it is to celebrate the confusion, to treat it as if it were a really great thing. Jesus is God, and he isn't. It's a mystery. Well, that's one response to the argument I'm about to give you, but is it the best response? What would Jesus do? I think that's the question that any thinking Christian should ask. Now, I fully realize that in many apologists' minds, to say that Jesus is God is just a shorthand way of gesturing at the tradition that goes back to the councils of 381 and 451. I fully, completely realize that. I also realize that people very closely associate in their minds the deity of Christ, whatever that is, with the Trinity. Let me just say that that's a confusion to think that those are the same thing. The deity of Christ, thinking that Jesus is in some way divine, and for some reason or other can be called God, this much predates Trinity theories. It much predates views on which God is triune, on which God is tripersonal. They're simply not the same thing, the deity of Christ and the Trinity. And the Trinity is just not the deity of Christ, the deity of the Father, and the deity of the Holy Spirit. For all we've said, that could be three deities, three gods. The Trinity is the idea that the one God is tripersonal, that the one God in some sense is or contains three, quote, persons, each of which shares the divine essence. But that's not what I'm talking about today. 
To say that Jesus is God is not an accurate summary of the traditional small-c Catholic Trinity theory, nor is it really an accurate summary of the traditional two natures views about Jesus that were, in a sense, defined at Chalcedon or Chalcedon in the year 451. To say that all comes down to that Jesus is God is pretty sloppy. But my concern in this episode is not with the official theology that's on the books that nobody ever talks about. My concern is with the theology that's in the pew, in the pulpit, said out loud on Sunday. Until I started doing house church in about 2005, I had attended five different evangelical churches. I never heard a sermon on the Trinity as such. I never heard a sermon which addressed the idea that Jesus and the Father are one usia, are one in substance or essence. I never heard the phrases hypostatic union or communication of idioms. I was never taught why Nestorianism is bad or why you shouldn't be a monosophite. The classical small-c Catholic Christological tradition is not really a part of evangelical faith and practice. I did hear fairly often, though, that Jesus is God. And if somebody brought up the dastardly Jehovah's Witnesses, I also heard that we must insist on the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is all important. If you don't believe the deity of Christ, you think that Christ is just a man. Deity of Christ, what does that mean? Many things can be said to be divine. The church is divine because it comes from the action of God. The Bible's divine because it's inspired by God. In many theological traditions, those who are born again and then resurrected are described as divine. People talk about salvation as divination. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 talks about people being called gods, not himself, but other people, other Israelites. Of course, the most obvious meaning that one can assign to the phrase that Jesus is divine or the deity of Christ or saying that Jesus is God, the most obvious meaning one would give to that is that those two are one, that Jesus and God are two names for the same thing, that Jesus and God are related in the way that anything is related to itself. They're related in the way that Barry Obama is related to Barack Obama. They're the same being that is, numerically the same being. So again, I'm well aware that people use this as a convenient abbreviation for official incarnation doctrines that go back to these Catholic councils, and I'm well aware that people tend to confuse together this idea of the deity of Christ and the Trinity. But I'm dealing with the interpretation of the deity of Christ or saying that Jesus is God, which means that Jesus just is God himself, and vice versa. This is, in fact, what many evangelicals think much of the time about Jesus and God. Frankly, I think they're confusing the two together. They're not distinguishing what should be distinguished. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the argument itself and its backstory...
this segment, I'm going to walk you through the argument. And you may want to look at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Also, your podcast player may show you the argument in the episode information. So you can look down at that if you want on your iPhone or your Android device or however you're listening to this. But before I get to it, where did this argument come from? This argument came from my paying attention to various evangelical apologists whom I admire. And they will often make arguments like this. Only God should be worshipped. Jesus should be worshipped. Therefore, Jesus is God. What the first premise of that argument is saying, that for anything whatever, if it should be worshipped, then that just is God. It's numerically identical to God. Second premise says that Jesus should be worshipped. And their conclusion is that Jesus just is God, that Jesus and God are numerically one. One just is the other. The fact that they make that argument shows that they're interpreting the deity of Christ or the claim that Jesus is God in the way that I described in the first segment. Again, they'll make this traditional argument. They'll say, Jesus can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is God. Or they'll argue, Jesus is called God. Only God can properly be called God. Therefore, Jesus just is God. The only statement in arguments like that is important. What it's saying is that no one else can do that. No one else can forgive sins. No one else can properly be called God. Right, so if Jesus can, well, then it follows that he is God himself. So what many or most evangelicals think, at least some of the time, at least when they're not focusing on the New Testament, these apologists are doubling down on, particularly in making arguments against Muslims, but in many, many contexts. They're identifying Jesus and God, and I don't mean associating Jesus and God, like that they have something important to do with one another. Well, any Christian thinks that, right? Well, they have a lot to do with one another. I mean that they identify Jesus and God in the sense that they are asserting them to be numerically one. But this won't fly. There are reasons why any Christian should disagree with this, as I'll explain. So what I did was I wrote up this argument for myself one day as I was mulling over these issues, and I sent the argument to one of my favorite apologists, someone who I knew was equipped to understand it. He ignored it. That was more than a year ago. So I've decided to put it before the public and put it before all of the apologists who care to have a conversation. By my lights, this is a valid and sound argument and an important argument. First, I'll explain the argument to you, then I'll give you some considerations in favor of each premise. So if you think that in the New Testament, Jesus just is the one God himself, you think they're numerically one, then I hereby urge you to consider and weigh the following argument. I'm calling this argument the challenge. It goes like this. Step one, Jesus and God differ. Step two, things which differ are two. That is, they are not numerically identical. Step three, therefore, Jesus and God are two. That is, they're not numerically identical. Three follows from one and two. Now we add an extra premise, four, for any X and any Y, X and Y are the same God, only if X and Y are not two. That is, they are numerically identical. 
So premise four says being the same God requires being numerically identical. Well, sure, being the same anything requires being numerically identical, right? For instance, if Saul and Paul are the same apostle or the same man, it follows just that they're the same, that they're numerically one. Step five, therefore, God and Jesus are not the same God. Why? Because they're not identical. To be the same God, they would have to be numerically identical. Okay, well, then it follows that they're not the same God. Step six is that there is only one God. Seven draws this inference. Therefore, either God is not a God or Jesus is not a God. Five said God and Jesus are not the same God. Okay, well, if there's only one God, then who is it? It can't be both of them because they're not the same God. So at most, one of them is a God. That's what step seven says. That follows from five and six. Step eight is another premise. God is a God. Step nine, therefore, Jesus is not a God. If they can't both be a God because there's only one God and those are not the same God, and God is a God, well, then Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't a God. That's step nine. And that's the final conclusion of the argument. Now, before I go through the premises and say why you should agree with the premises, let me make a few general comments about the argument. First of all, notice that this is not an anti-Trinitarian argument. Perhaps you know I'm not a Trinitarian, though I am a Christian. But lay that aside. It's a fact that some Trinitarians will agree with me that this argument that I just gave is sound. Other Christians will deny various of the premises. It depends on which Trinity theory they hold to. And honestly, some people's views on the Trinity are really just muddled and unclear, and their views on the Trinity are not going to give them any response to the argument. But as far as Christian philosophers, people who are called analytic theologians, if they have a Trinity theory, it's highly developed, and they probably will have some automatic response to the argument that I just gave. In a sense, their theory has been crafted with these concerns in mind. Some of them, though, while being a certain kind of Trinitarian, will just accept the argument as sound. So it's not, by its nature, an anti-Trinitarian argument, nor is it an anti-Christian argument. To the contrary, I'm a Christian arguing to my fellow Christians. The argument is no more or less than a friendly invitation to critically thinking through the relation between Jesus and God from a Christian perspective and specifically from a New Testament perspective. Those are my concerns. This is not an objection to Christianity. My other initial comment about this argument is that I'm pretty sure that it's valid. This is just to say that there's no mistake in the reasoning. In other words, three really follows from one and two, five really follows from three and four, seven really follows from five and six, nine really follows from seven and eight, in other words, if there's a mistake in this challenge, it's in one or more of the premises. It's not a failure in drawing implications out of the premises. It is valid, I think, and you can probably see, at least if you study it a little bit, that it's valid. The question is, yeah, but is it sound? A valid argument is one where if all the premises were true, then the conclusion would have to be true. Validity is just having the right kind of structure between the premises and the conclusion. But the issue is, yeah, but are the premises true? Then we're asking, is it a sound argument? 
A sound argument is valid, so if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. But also, in a sound argument, the premises are, in fact, true. But then, because it's valid, the conclusion has to be true also. I say that it's a sound argument. What do you say? The premises are 1, 2, 4, 6, and 8. So, 2, 4, 6, 8, and 1. If all of those are true, then this is a sound argument. If you think it's an unsound argument, you should say which premise or premises you doubt or deny and why. Anything less than that is just refusing to think about these issues. It's refusing to think critically about the relationship between Jesus and God. When the Trinity's podcast resumes, I'll walk you through the premises, and I'll explain to you why I think you should agree with each one of them. The first premise says that Jesus and God differ. What I mean by that is that they have differed, they do differ, or they will differ, or all of those. I could even just make the point using the claim that they could differ, but leave that aside. Many New Testament examples support that Jesus and God have differed and maybe do differ right now. Note that just one example is sufficient to make one true. I just mean that there is, has been, or will be at least one difference. That's all I mean by saying that Jesus and God differ. I don't mean that they're completely different. I don't mean that they're not similar in any way. I just mean that they differ in one or more ways. This is something you really shouldn't deny. Are you a Trinitarian? If so, you think that God is triune. You don't think that Jesus is triune. You would deny that Jesus is tripersonal. Okay, then you agree that God and Jesus differ. What, you say God doesn't mean the Trinity, it means the Father, as in the New Testament? Okay, sure, fine. Well, God, in that sense, sent his Son. Jesus did not send his Son. Jesus doesn't have a Son. God did not ask himself in Gethsemane to spare Jesus from the fate of the cross. But Jesus did ask God in Gethsemane to spare him from the fate of death on the cross. There's another New Testament difference between Jesus and God. One of them made that request, the other one didn't. One of them received that request, the other one didn't. There was also clearly a difference of will there between the two. God, at that moment, wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus didn't. That's why he asked to be excused. Of course, God said no to that. More New Testament examples, God didn't raise himself from the dead. Jesus was raised by God from the dead. God never died. Jesus died on the cross. God is not the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. God doesn't literally have a mother. Jesus literally does have a mother. God doesn't pray to himself. However, during his ministry, Jesus often prayed to God. God said something like, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Jesus never said that. God hasn't been baptized. 
Jesus has been baptized. Now, if you want to quibble about some of those issues, if you want to take the traditional view that Mary's the mother of God, or if you want to say that God died on the cross, fine, it doesn't matter. I just need you to admit that there is one difference between Jesus and God, that there is or has been or will be one difference. If there is a difference between the two, then premise one is true. Just one of those differences is sufficient to make one true. Premise two says, things which differ are two. That is, they are not numerically identical. Some philosophers call this the distinctness of difference. If you have some A and B and one at the same time, and there's a difference between them at that same time, well, you know, A isn't B and B isn't A. We're dealing with two things, not one, right? This is self-evident. Two is a version of what philosophers more often call the indiscernibility of identicals. And it's really self-evident to anyone who grasps clearly the concept of identity, the concept of numerical sameness, what philosophers sometimes call absolute identity. We all do understand this concept, and we employ it often. Two could be paraphrased as, a single thing can't at one time be and not be a certain way. If you find at some time that A and B differ, then you know that A and B are truly two. It's hard to argue for this principle from something that's more evident, something that's more obvious, but we can give examples to help you see its truth, and we can display how we rely on this principle even in non-theoretical matters. Imagine that a person mistakenly confuses together the two recent American presidents named George Bush, President number 41. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes. But I will, and the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say, read my lips. No new taxes. And President number 43. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me, we can't get fooled again. <laughs> to cure this person's confusion, who's confusing together these two different beings called George Bush, and indeed to prove them to be two beings, that is, not numerically identical, all we need to do is to point out one difference between them. Well, here's one difference. Number 41 had a son who went on to be president in 2001 to 2009. Number 43 had no such son. Right, it just takes one difference, no matter how small. It could be the number of hairs on their head, the number of cells in their left pinky. One difference, no matter how small, if it's at one time, it shows decisively, it proves that they are two, not one. Step four is another premise. It might scare you a little bit when I read it out as I've written it. For any X and Y, X and Y are the same God, only if X and Y are not two. That is, they are numerically identical. I think that this principle is self-evident, although, alas, some philosophers deny it. That's the problem with philosophy, you know. In general, if X and Y are the same F, this just means X is an F, Y is an F, and X just is Y. X and Y are numerically one. This premise gives a necessary condition on being the same God. It says that things can't be the same God unless they are the same thing same being, unless they are not numerically two. Well, sure. 
that holds for being the same God or the same dog or the same man, the same planet, the same anything. Four is arguably self-evident. It's something that you know to be true just about as soon as you understand it. And I wouldn't take much comfort in the fact that a few philosophers would deny four. Remember that famous philosophers have denied that you exist. Famous philosophers have denied that anything whatever changes. Famous philosophers have denied that any action is morally right or morally wrong. Famous philosophers have denied that there's more than one thing in existence. Yeah, sure, it looks like there are many things. Yeah, we know that. But really, there's only one thing. There couldn't be two things. Serious heavyweight intellectuals have argued that. My point is that to save their various theories, sometimes philosophers deny what's obviously true. I think that four is obviously true. How about you? Going down to the next independent premise, six says that there is only one God. Well, any Christian should agree with that. It doesn't say there's only one who can properly be called God. That, according to the New Testament, is false. Jesus assumes that it's false in John chapter 10. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said, I am God's Son? It's perfectly consistent with my challenge. It's perfectly consistent with this whole argument that sometimes Jesus is addressed as God. Indeed, I think that he's addressed as God, at least in this famous passage in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oils of gladness beyond your companions. It's obvious that Jesus is the first one who's called God there. Of course, the immediate context distinguishes him from God, from the one God, from God Almighty. Jesus is addressed as God, yes, but is assumed here to have a God over him. But when we say there's one God, we're not saying that only one can be called God. Again, that's false according to Jesus and according to both Old Testament and New Testament. When Christians say there's one God, they mean that there's only one being who satisfies the monotheistic biblical conception of a God. It's Yahweh. Yahweh says, I'm the only God and there's no other. You probably remember the famous statements of this through the prophet Isaiah. And there are also these famous monotheistic passages in the book of Deuteronomy. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown, that you might know that Yahweh is God, there is no other besides Him. Know, therefore, today, and lay it to your heart, that Yahweh is God in heaven above, and on the earth beneath. 
there is no other. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. It's not a matter of what you're called, it's a matter of being omnipotent, omniscient, the ultimate source of everything else, perfectly good, untemptable, immortal by essence, and so on. I hope then that you won't deny premise six that says there's only one God. And don't forget that Jesus himself agrees with this in the following place in Mark. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And also in the Gospel of John, he goes to the trouble of telling us who this one God is. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Moving on, step eight is another independent premise. It says that God is a God. So when I say a God, I'm using God as a common noun. I'm saying what kind of being God is. The first word of the sentence, God is a God. The first word I'm using like a name or a title. It's a singular referring term. It's referring to Yahweh. So premise 8 says that Yahweh is a God. Well, of course he is. I mean, that's almost true by definition. Do you know who we're talking about here? Now don't stumble over the little letter A there, the indefinite article. God, in the Christian view, Yahweh is the only God. Well, it follows from that that he is a God. That he is a God doesn't imply that he has any God peers. Compare with this case from ordinary life. If Sally is a child of Bob and Margaret, this doesn't rule out that she's their only child. However you use the term God, whether you're talking about the Father or about the Trinity, premise 8 is going to be true. That's supposed to be a God that you're talking about, right? God, hotheos in Greek, in the New Testament is nearly always the Father. And since around the end of the 4th century, God often refers to the tripersonal God taught by Catholic tradition. Either way, eight will be true. I think that eight is something that any Christian should agree with. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what are you accepting if you accept the conclusions in this argument, which are steps three, five, seven, and nine? Step 9, the argument, says, therefore, Jesus is not a God. We just heard in 7 and 8 that either God is not a God or Jesus is not a God, but 8 says God is a God, so therefore Jesus is not a God. 9 follows from 7 and 8. By definition, what is not a God is not literally divine. That is, not divine in the way that the one God is divine. If you want to talk about divine in some lesser sense, well, fine. 
Nine is consistent with Jesus being divine in some lesser sense. Nine implies the falsity, though, of the deity of Jesus or the full deity of Christ. Of course, he could still be divine in the sense of belonging to God, divine in the sense of being God's Messiah, doing God's work, being in God and vice versa. In other words, God's working through him and he's working together, partnering together with God, like you see in the gospel according to John. He can be divine in the sense that God is his father. He's the unique son of God, as it says in Luke. He might even have a divine nature in addition to a human nature, as is the traditional family of speculations. That's consistent with nine. Nine only rules out that Jesus is a God in the way that God is a God. It rules out the deity of Christ in that sense. Affirming this conclusion, nine leaves a lot of options open when it comes to Christology and to the Trinity. Both Trinitarian and Unitarian ways lie open. What it closes off is the oversimplification of the old Catholic theology that I mentioned at the start of this podcast. What it rules out is that Jesus is divine in the same exact sense that God is divine, where being divine implies being a God, where it implies that they're the same God. Nine, then, is the final conclusion in the argument, but notice that before it there are three preliminary conclusions, so let's work back up the argument and see what you're granting if you grant those other conclusions. This is all just part of understanding what exactly you're agreeing to if you agree with me that this is a sound argument. Step seven is a preliminary conclusion, therefore either God is not a God or Jesus is not a God. This is just something which follows from five and six. They're not the same God and there's only one God. Okay, well, they can't both be gods. At most, one of them is a God. If you want to deny seven, it looks like you need to deny five or six. Either say that the same God or deny that there's only one God. Both of those look bad. What about step five, the previous conclusion? Therefore, God and Jesus are not the same God. Well, again, this just followed from what went before. If they are two, and being the same God requires not being two, well, then they can't be the same God. If they're the same God, they're the same being, right? But they're not the same being. That's what step three said. But let's go back to that. That was the first preliminary conclusion in the argument, step three. Therefore, God and Jesus are two. Well, that follows from one and two, that they have differed. And things which differ are two. Okay, well then God and Jesus are two. They're not one and the same. They're not numerically one. The conclusions then each just drive us back to a couple of the premises. The thing is, each of the premises seems to be true. Either something we know to be true by reason alone, or something we know to be true just because we think that the New Testament is reliable in what it says about God and Jesus. Of course, this is an argument among Christians who are assuming that. And those again are 1, 2, 4, 6, and 8. It looks like if you accept them, then you are already committed to the truth of the conclusion that Jesus is not a God. If you accept this argument as sound, you should realize that it's extremely misleading to say that Jesus is God. At best, it's extremely misleading. If you say that Jesus is God, people are going to hear that as meaning that Jesus is God himself, that Jesus and God are one and the same, that they're numerically one. We've just shown why that's not true. If you say that Jesus is God, people are going to immediately infer that Jesus is a God, 
Because just by definition, God with a capital G is a God. So if Jesus is God, capital G, Jesus must be a God. But we've just proven that to be false. Jesus is not a God. Now I know that theories about God and Jesus are legion, and that people will still want to use this traditional language that Jesus is God as an abbreviation for those ancient claims. But you need to keep in mind what people are actually hearing here and now when you say that Jesus is God. They're hearing that Jesus and God are numerically one. But they're not. If you agree with three, you agree that they're not numerically one. If you agree with nine, you also agree that Jesus is not a God. He's not divine in the same way that God is divine. Is he divine in some other way? Well, that's another conversation. Now, hopefully, we've made clear what the argument is saying and what it's not saying. So the question for you to answer is, do you agree that this is a sound argument? If you say that you don't like one or more of the conclusions, then you need to show us where the mistake lies. If you're going to say that this is an unsound argument, or that we don't know it to be a sound argument, then you need to point out at least one premise and be able to give convincing reasons why we should deny or at least withhold believing that premise. Say, well, we can't say if it's true or false. Okay, well, then we can't say this is a sound argument. Or if you can convince us that that's a false premise, okay, then it's unsound because it has a false premise. Myself, I don't think any of them are false. The question is, what do you think? This is not a matter for only philosophers or only for scholars or apologists. It concerns the very beating heart of Christian belief and how we make sense of the whole Bible. And any thoughtful Christian ought to be able to either endorse this argument as sound or say which premise or premises should be denied or doubted, all the more so for one who would teach about these matters. So again, here are your choices. Either the argument's sound, or we should deny or withhold one or more of these. One, two, four, six, or eight. Could be more than one. So I look forward to your replies. If you want to make an anonymous reply, just email me. I'll respect your anonymity, and I'll cut and paste your reply into the comments section for this post at trinities.org. Do you have a microphone or a recorder? Do you know how to use your smartphone to make a recording? I'd love to hear your audio feedback. Just try to keep it short. You can find a link on this blog post where you can upload me any kind of sound file. And I'll include that in a future episode and comment on it, at least if it's to the point and short enough. Just make sure you're clear about which premise is the faulty premise. There's got to be at least one, unless you're going to agree with me that the argument is sound. In a future episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll discuss some various replies that Christian philosophers would make to this argument. Honestly, I think it's far more reasonable to just accept the argument as sound and then to adjust one's views on the topics of Trinity and Incarnation to fit. Also, at the blog post for this episode, there's a poll. Of course, no poll is scientific because it's not a valid sample people participate in. It. It's not a random sample of all the populace, but uh, I hope you go ahead and vote in it just for fun, just to see what other listeners of the Trinity's podcast or readers of the blog post think about this. Which premise should be denied or doubted, if any? Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your responses.
thinking music for today's episode is the track Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle. You can listen to or download that track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.